Well, if there was one thing you could change about yourself that would have the most significant impact, would you do it? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. There is something we all can do. It's not as hard as we think, and there are more benefits to it than you can count. All you need to do is change the way you eat. We're going to find out exactly how exactly what and why so we can better understand one of the simplest and most effective ways to feel our best and protect our longevity. Bill, I love to talk about longevity, especially active longevity. And instead of just talking to experts, what if we introduce you to someone who is actually living a long, active life? And I mean a very long and very active life. I went all the way to Louisiana to visit with a remarkable woman by the name of Julia Hawkins. I really went to witness human history because at 105 years old, she was there to set a world record in the 100-meter dash in an age group that didn't even exist until she ran the race. But I visited with her at her home as well and learned about her personal life. And even more interesting than the race is the role that love has played in her life. Now, in addition to that interview, well, it turns out that one of the best ways to improve your chances of living a long life is to focus on the food you eat. And we're going to talk to a college professor, a mathematician, who is changing course in his career to inspire all of us to change our diets. Folks, we're going to bring you hope, inspiration, and possibility all right now on Growing Bold. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, it used to be that food was just food. Remember? I mean, whatever was around is what you ate. Then we started eating for taste. The better something tasted, at least in my case, the more we'd shovel it in, until we started realizing we were eating ourselves sick. We started to understand that the right food could be essential to our health, to our longevity, Plant-based was something everybody was talking about, but oh my gosh, I mean, who wants to learn a whole new way of eating? And that can be so bland and so tasteless. Well, now we know it doesn't have to be that way at all. In fact, with a little knowledge and a little creativity, a vegetarian diet can not only be the best thing you could possibly do for your health, it can also be the tastiest. That's what our next guest believes, and he's offering to prove it to anyone who will give him a chance. He's a restaurateur, a chef, and the author of a book called Dreaming in Spice, A Sinfully Vegetarian Odyssey. Let's say hi to Hari Pulupaka. How are you, Hari? I'm great, Bill. Thank you for that rousing introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you today. But isn't that true? Isn't that the way it is? We kind of all go through this process of eating until we realize that it is the key to everything we are. It is. You are what you eat is an old saying. And I grew up a vegetarian in India and in Mumbai, and I came to this country over 21 years ago. But as a professional chef, of course, I've cooked and served just about everything there is to do. Uh, I am of the firm belief that Food, as you point out, not only uh, is sustenance, but it's nourishment, it's enjoy, it's enjoyment, it's memory making, it's longevity, it's love, it's the key to the, the sustainability of our very own species. It's everything. I mean, a food brings people together in ways that you very well know. Uh, I can't think of uh, any significant event that didn't have a component that related to food and or beverage 
that made the, the experience even more enjoyable. So I truly believe that a planned forward diet, you know, it's a hard ask sometimes for people to just sort of give up things that they're so used to and enjoy so much. So I'm of the firm belief that by asking gently but proving without any any doubt that uh, the food that's on the plate is First of all, tasty. That's my. That's why I, I lean on that. That's how I begin the conversation of food. Food has to taste good, and I'd like to think that my experience with that comes into play a little bit. My own background, of course, but food when it tastes good, is just that. It's enjoy. It's 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 fulfillment. It's enjoyment. It's nourishment. But when that food that tastes good is also good for you, how could it not be a win-win situation? That's really my mo, frankly, in life. Well, Hari, I, I did not realize that you were raised in Mumbai, so let me apologize to you because you missed out on a youth filled with Twinkies, corn dogs, <laughs> cotton candy, sugary breakfast cereals, all the wonderful things that our parents gave us in our formative and growing years yes, yes. so that we would all grow up to have diabetes, obesity, and heart conditions. Well, I, I, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, but... You know, India, is like any other country, has its share of junk food and fast food and food that tastes good and is not good for you. But at the end of the day, you know, I would be the last person to subscribe a shift in one's diet that gives up enjoyment. And so you're allowed to miss. You're allowed to kind of, I don't want to say cheat, but you're allowed to treat yourself in a way that satisfies your soul and, and sort of completes your memory of life, with your, your, your memories with food. But it's all about balance, is it not? It's about, you know, you can you can you can play if you work a little bit, right? I mean, that's really the, what it's all about. So if we're willing to work a little bit towards being more mindful with what we eat and how we eat and how much we eat, uh, then we're allowed to play a little bit. And playing sometimes involves a nice tall basket of French fries, in my opinion. Does it seem to you that like the vegetarian diet is kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of diets. I mean, it gets no respect, no respect, no respect at all. Well, why is that? Why, we, we really are. You say vegetarian, and, and that terrifies people. So you make a great point, and that's the challenge. It's the uphill battle that I and people like me face when I'm trying to educate and sort of inspire people to live life differently with the food that they eat. Uh, you know, words matter, right? You point out words matter, and it gets no respect, vegetarian. So all of a sudden, when we label food a certain way, but having said that, you know, we have a need to label food. I mean, we have to tell people what kind of food it is. But, you know, it's all about packaging. It's marketing to some degree. In India, people don't necessarily label everything that's vegetarian as being vegetarian because it's a much old, older tradition of eating plant-forward meals, uh, and nor do people say this is a chicken dish necessarily. It's a dish. Here's the dish, and here's the maybe the historical context, and here's the flavor profile. After that, you can discover for yourself to some degree what the main ingredients might be. So in my opinion, the term vegetarian, at least in the West, in the American West, I should say, more so than Europe perhaps, has been deemed as just that. It's a label, not unlike uh, being uh, a hippie or being a Democrat or being a libertarian or any of the label you want. So I think it's a matter of just us as professionals, I speak for myself now and my colleagues in the industry, uh, to just put out damn good food and don't necessarily label it as being vegetarian. It happens to be. That's the good news. But it tastes good first. And that's the first story. That's the lead story, to use your metaphor. Folks, 
Ari Pulapaka is with us making great points. And the biggest point he's made so far is words matter. It makes a difference. And Hari wrote a book, a great book, one you should check out, called Sinfully Vegetarian Odyssey. If words matter, my friend, what does sinfully and odyssey have to do with vegetarian? Great, great question. You know, I had I thought long and hard about what would I call this book that clearly was going to be mostly plant-based, but certainly vegetarian. First of all, it was easy because it's the life I lived and it's what I ate for over 21 years exclusively. So it's not like it was a stretch for me to think about food that uh, was made up of ingredients like that. The sinfully referred to the, refers to the fact that you're not doing – okay, I can get a lot of flack, but it's in fact I've been encouraged to say change the title, to, to be completely, completely honest with you by some professionals and some experts to maybe change the title. I stuck to my guns. I left it as the way it is. But to me, the reason for the word sinful or sinfully in this case has to do with the notion that I just mentioned a while ago, which is that I lead with some sort of some semblance of decadence and enjoyment. You know, we often think of sinful desserts as being just that. It's a sort of a, uh, a maybe I don't deserve this. It's too much. I'm probably committing a crime of some kind by eating food that tastes so good. And that's the reference there is to, to eat is to is to be inspired by what's in the book and my thoughts about eating sinfully but eating vegetarian food in a way that satisfies your cravings. And there's a certain sort of uh, a reference to maybe we, we sometimes uh, fault ourselves and maybe and experience some sort of guilt when we feel good, right? So that's, there's that. The Odyssey clearly refers to my own journey. My journey uh, as an individual, as, as a human being first, uh, but in the context of this book, my journey of having lived an exclusively vegetarian lifestyle, not knowing any different because that's how my family ate uh, growing up. And so for 21 years, that's how I ate. I came to this country in 1987. Long story short, I now serve all kinds of food there is, but I'm sort of making a full circle back. And maybe that's the lesson here. My journey is coming full circle to what I truly believe when it comes to food and what, what role food should have. Uh, in the world we live in, which is that it must taste good and it should be as much as possible good for you. So it's sinful that it's, it's, it's full of joy and it tastes good and it's um, an odyssey. So it's a complete journey and it's probably, that's probably not uncommon for most of us when we reach past a certain age, we think about, okay, what is it, what really matters at this point in your life? And for me, what matters now is to sort of bring to the table, pun intended, all that I've learned, all that I think is important, but along the way, continually continually learn and improve and grow bolder. Now, I like what you did there. There are generations of us here, I think, who have been, like I said before, we've been raised on fast food and soda. And to many of us, if cooking, if it involves more than a couple minutes in the microwave, well, you know, we got other things to do. So how do we change our mindset and how can we get your kind of cuisine to be incorporated into part of our daily routine. Thank you for asking that. I mean, that's the point. I'm a teacher first. And so, you know, I, through my experience, of course, know a lot more than I'm able to teach sometimes. And that's true about most of us as professionals. So for me, the secret there is to, first of all, start with baby steps. And that's a cliche, I know. But, you know, you can actually use a microwave and taste really, make really tasty meals. I'm not suggesting that we do that necessarily all day long. But 
the recipes that are in the book, first of all, range from being very elementary to very complicated and very professional. And that's intentional because I want the book to be as as useful and enjoyed by a wide spectrum of society. So for those of us who want to not necessarily spend two hours in the kitchen, even though for me that's nothing, but to spend two hours in the kitchen to make a meal or just a dish even sometimes, you know, by spending a little bit of time up front, doing a little bit of Sunday prep, if you will, or any holiday prep, you know, while you're making your normal meal to make a few condiments and flavoring agents and spice blends and sauces, which I give a lot of recipes for in the leading part of the book in the recipe section, I'm suggesting that when it's time to actually make a weekday meal and you're tired and you don't want to spend even 20 minutes making a meal, you spend some time on your day when you do enjoy cooking, when you can't knock back a beverage, when you can't watch your TV, you can watch your TV program and your sports and, and, and say to yourself, look, I can just reach into my refrigerator, grab something that I made using wholesome plant-based ingredients for the most part that's full of flavor and with just a little bit of effort, in a matter of five or ten minutes, create a fantastic, deep-flavored, foodie-style uh, dish or set of dishes that taste like something that I ate at a fine restaurant. So the baby steps are, you know, learn to make a few spice blends and sauces that really are very versatile, and they cr- they cross the they cross all the boundaries of of cuisines that are defined in very specific ways. So you can make a sauce that leads its way to a Middle Eastern dish. It leads its way to a North African dish, and it could lead itself to a Latin dish, all because there are some core ingredients or some core depth of flavor, and the application may change. But but the fact that you've got this one sauce that can be stretched in different ways gives a lot of kind of uh, power to the home cook to say that I can do this, and it's not so intimidating, and I don't have to buy this product on the shelf in a grocery store that has a laundry list of ingredients. I hope that made sense. That is Harry Pulapaka talking about the benefits of moving towards a plant-based diet. But that's not all. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation by focusing on some other unexpected benefits. This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder, and we're right in the middle of a very important conversation. It's about how to nourish ourselves in a way that can maximize our chances of living a healthy, happy life. Before the break, Hari Polapaka explained that good food can be just as tasty as any other, and now we're going to find out what it takes to make major changes in our diets, and Harry's going to reveal what he believes is the most important ingredient you need to make life worthwhile. Let's get back to Bill Schaefer and his interview with Hari Polapaka. So, Hari, has being a, a teacher in the past, has this helped your natural inclination to to want to spread the word? Thank you for that, Bill. Absolutely. Being a teacher you know, has, is critical for me as I, as I go through life as a human being because I think by 
being a professional teacher, I'd like to think I'm a very good student of life. You know, it's hard to be a good teacher or teacher at all if you're not able to learn yourself. And so by practicing the craft of teaching, which I, of course, inherited from my mother, by the way, uh, she was a lifelong math and science teacher in high school, and she taught me. And so here I am, you know, I came to this country for that reason, to grow my education. But by being a teacher, I naturally first try to learn something as best as I can learn it first, before I even have any inclination to try to share that with others. So I have a natural sense of curiosity on my own because I'm a teacher first. And that was extremely useful for me as I went through a professional midlife crisis, you know, over 15 years ago. And I point out, left my, not didn't leave, but just sort of added to my full existence as a full-time academic and went to culinary school at night and all of that stuff. But by being a teacher, I, I, I became better at learning. And by becoming better at learning, I'm hoping that I became better at knowing and then by becoming better at knowing and by being careful and being passionate about sharing that knowing with others, the world around me as best as I can, I'm hopeful that translates to a more useful talking head uh, for the people out there. So I hope that made sense. I want to ask you more about the midlife crisis. I mean, it's something that all of us go through as we make the turn into what has previously been thought of as the sliding off the slope years, but you've managed to do what Growing Boulder is all about, and you're turning your midlife crisis into maybe riding the train, putting yourself on the track that you should have been on, where your passion is. You've reinvented yourself. You're, you've become the person that I'm guessing you always wanted to be. How did that affect you, and what do you think of, of this phase of life that you're in? Thank you for that. I mean, I, I, I reflect on that frequently, actually, because I'm asked the question quite a bit as to why and why did you go down this path? Why did you leave your comfort zone and become so uncomfortable and struggle so much to do what you're doing now? And I am sort of old school when it comes to thinking like that. I'm a firm believer of, I have no formal proof of this, even though I'm, I'm a mathematician. I've bought into this idea of life that everything happens, not necessarily for a reason, but we can take everything that happens for the most part and try to make something of it. And so for me, all, those, all that time that I spent studying and getting a PhD in mathematics and struggling trying to get a, a job here and a job there and bouncing back and forth between temporary positions before I finally landed in Deland, Florida at Stetson University over 21 years ago, uh, I felt like it. all of those experiences are cumulative. They kind of add, they don't take away. I don't think any experience really takes away from a person's overall sense of knowing and, and moving forward and being more bold in decision-making moving forward. So I feel like even though I've changed my I, – I didn't change. I added to my professional career at the age of 41 uh, – 40, actually. I'm 55 now. Uh, I was only able to do that. Because I went through everything I did before. So I don't think it was in lieu of, I don't think any of that stuff before was missed opportunity or that I found my calling too late in life. I really don't believe things like that. I feel like I'm in the now and this is what I have and this is what I'm able to do and this is my support system. So it's my responsibility to make the most of it and continue to grow. I hope that's uh, reasonable in mindset. Yeah, I'm curious. I, I, I guarantee 
that everyone you told about when you were thinking of making this change told you, oh, are you kidding? Authors don't make money anymore. Restaurateurs, that's the worst. You'll be hot <laughs> one minute and cold the next. Are you crazy? This is the wrong move. I don't mind you reinventing yourself, but the direction, you, you want to help people become vegetarian? Good luck to you, because uh, it's not going to happen. But yet, this is a purpose that you believe in. And you said not, it doesn't need to be a calling, but it's, it's certainly a passion. So you're 55. What's life like at 55? Well, uh, there are a few things that I can't do anymore, and they're mostly physical. But there's, I don't think there's much that I cannot do mentally. I do have, you know, I don't remember everything I, I could at once. Uh, my calculation speeds are a little bit slower than before. I'm a mathematician, of course. So life at 55 for me, first of all, is I feel it's very blessed. I have a wonderful partner in life, my wife, Dr. Jennifer Kolopaka. Jennifer was, of course, extremely supportive. And, uh, you know, together we built this restaurant and ran it for all this time. Uh, successfully, I'd like to think. But that's important. So what I would say to people is, you know, uh, recognize the folks in your life who are genuinely trying to be supportive. They may sometimes give you the harsh truth and tell you things that you don't want to hear. But as long as you understand that they're coming from a place of true love and true care, take their advice seriously and listen and learn. So in my case, all those folks who told me not to do what I was about to do, which is get into the restaurant business or be an author and try to make money that way, uh, I felt like, first of all, uh, they weren't living my life. They hadn't gained the experience that I had. They were not going through the my, my trouble and my uh, uneasiness with where I was in my professional life. So it's easy to cast aspersions, you know, when, when, when it's not your life. And so I feel like you take that advice, you don't disregard it, you don't discount it, you don't always listen to it, but for sure let it inspire you to do what you really want to do. So my advice would be to simply uh, not necessarily block it all off, but rather listen, learn, get inspired, don't don't kind of be mired in the trenches. Don't don't uh, brood over the negative. Those are all easy things to say, and I can't say this enough, that it's easy to get down. It's easy to self-doubt. It's easy to all do all those things. In fact, I'm just now launching a new career of my own again. I'm, I'm trying to grow my company, the, the Global Cooking School, which hopefully brings together on one common track that's wide enough to accommodate both of my professions, that is teaching and cooking, in a way that makes sense. So it's not so disparate. Before, for all this time, for over a decade, 12 years, I was running on parallel tracks. My teaching was going, teaching of mathematics was going almost as fast as my cooking professionally was going and my wanting to grow my chef personality and career. But I feel like finally at the age of 55, uh, those two tracks are merging. And it, everything that I see ahead of me is making all the sense in the world, frankly. So, Hari, let me ask you just a couple of questions to wrap up here for everybody now who's kind of on the edge of their seats and thinking, well, maybe this guy's got something for me. Uh, how, where, do, where do we start? Is, is it with your book? Is it how we is, is it a different way of shopping at the store? What's a good way to start that's not overwhelming? Certainly. And that's a great point, because baby steps that I referred to earlier are all where it's all about. You know, nothing's going to happen if something doesn't change. Let's start with that premise. If something doesn't change, if at least one thing doesn't change, nothing's going to happen. Things will be as they are. So a, a small baby step could be just, it could be as simple as one meal a week. One meal a week, as much as you are dreading it, don't 
consume anything but plant-based stuff. It could be a salad, but there are so many more interesting things out there. It could be a pasta dish. It could be a pizza. It could be whatever. So don't deprive yourself and feel like you have to eat the healthiest thing in the world and you're going to hate it because you can't wait to have that big steak the next day. So start with one meal a week. One meal is plant-based. So stay away from the fast, stay away from the processed food aisle in the grocery store. If you have to go down that aisle, don't go down that aisle more than once a week. When you go to a restaurant and let's say you do have a burger, don't have fries with the burger. Or if you have fries, don't have the burger, right? So make some small adjustments, replace what would have been a composed, decadent, animal forward, non-plant-based forward meal. Replace one or two components in that meal with something that is plant-based. And in the process, what happens is, first of all, you're getting a taste of dishes and ingredients that normally you wouldn't even make give much time to. But your body is going to thank you for this. Fold in some exercise, fold in some activity in your life. Maybe it's walking three times a week with the person you love or by yourself or with your dog or whatever. It could be walking for five minutes, walking for 15 minutes. So you add a little bit of exercise and activity, take away one or two things that you enjoy a lot. Of all the things you enjoy, replace them with one or two things that are for sure plant-based and healthy and less in oil, maybe no oil even, no sugar, low in salt, and here's the beauty. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. Because the other part of the meal is traditional and satisfying and all of that, first of all, you won't notice the difference. Secondly, I think, and this is the crazy academic in me, the contrast between this rich, decadent, fatty, salty food that you may enjoy a lot of contrasted again this, against this fresh, unseasoned, natural, clean, light accompaniment might actually make it a more interesting combination. And this is how I think of as a, as a chef. If I make a rich dish, I'm always going to garnish it or accompany it with something that's light and vibrant and fresh. And that's not because I'm trying to provide a healthy alternative, because I think that makes culinary sense. So there's a long answer to your question, but small baby steps, one meal, one day of the week, a little bit of activity, and you'll be amazed how the next week your body's going to crave it, and after a few weeks, your body won't even know the difference. And at some point, that'll be the only way you'll do life. You're, you're, you hit the nail on the head. The definition of, of change, it doesn't have to be an overnight drastic change. It's just something more than you did the day before, whether it's exercise or the way you eat. So let's wrap it up. We're talking with the crazy academic. Uh, <laughs> we'll give you the chance to give us your very best pitch. What, what do you hope? If there's one thing that people remember from, from all that we've been through today, what's your message? What do you wish we understood? I would say if I had to pick one thing, I would say uh, don't let labels scare you. Food brings people together. There are over 9 billion people on this planet. They've all been cooking food for different amounts of time, and different societies have evolved around food and inspired by food. Um, don't judge a society by its food. Embrace the melting pot that is the United States of America. Uh, if you do eat a taco, lighten it up a little bit. So the one thing I would say is be open to life. Soak it all in. Listen to your body. At the end of the day, the underscore is 
Listen to your body. Your body is not lying. If there's one entity in this world that's not lying to you, it's your own body. And your body will tell you. And Hari, that's great advice because mine keeps getting bigger and bigger (laughs) and bigger. But it won't because I'm going to get the book Dreaming in Spice, a sinfully vegetarian odyssey. I really can't wait to dive into it. I've been wanting to move that direction for a long time myself. And, and sometimes all it takes is the smallest push. And the realization is that it's not an ordeal. It's an opportunity. So our guest has been the acclaimed author, restaurateur, and chef, Hari Pulapaka. Great information, folks. Go out there and live your healthiest life. Coming up, one of the most impressive and inspiring 105-year-olds ever to live, Mark Middleton talks with Julia Hawkins about the three L's, life, love, and longevity. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. One of the best things you can do for your health doesn't come from a pharmacy. It's not a pill. It's not a supplement. But it can make you feel better like that. Here's aging expert Annette Kelly. I'm sure you've heard that in Japan, physicians give um, prescriptions for an hour in the forest. What does that actually mean? An hour in the forest? Why would you need a prescription for that? Just go. But we don't. But to wander in the green space is uh, so refreshing and uh, thought-provoking as well as life-giving. And it pulls you out of yourself even though there's no one else there. And it brings you to something that you often talk about, and that's connection. Yeah. The power of connection. And even if you're home alone... Mm-hmm. You can use Zoom. Mm-hmm. You can reach out sure. with a video call. Oh, absolutely. You can use technology in ways that right. we've always avoided before. Yes. And actually even just phone calls, Bill, you know, and notes. I've been, um, all through the, the uh, pandemic, I've been writing notes several a week to people that I don't see because I'm not out to see them. And um, generally older people because they're, contacts are down like mine are. And uh, the responses I've gotten have, have been really overwhelming. You know, you'd think it was a, you know, a big present or something, you know, because we don't write notes anymore. I grew up in an era, so did you maybe, of notes. And uh, I learned how to write notes, you know, from my parents. And, uh, and I'm enjoying it so much, doing it. And then the response has been fabulous. So what kind of a connection is that? That is something that a a person receiving a handwritten note knows they were the object of someone's intention. 
without a doubt. Looking up the address, whatever the words say, it can be very simple. When you're the object of someone else's intention, and I'm not just saying attention, but intention, that has to be so health-providing that um, we, should, we should do it more. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer. Reach out to someone. It'll make a difference in their lives and yours. Well, I hope you know by now that Growing Boulder believes that the world is filled with hope, inspiration, and possibility. So why is there an epidemic of mean-spirited unhappiness? Why are there so many haters out there? Why are we becoming a society in which we define ourselves by what we oppose instead of what we believe in? Why can't we stop noticing differences and start celebrating similarities? We can't let the haters win, which is why we've declared Growing Boulder a no-hater zone. We encourage thoughtful and respectful difference of opinion. We can all benefit from learning to walk in one another's shoes, but it's time to stop tearing down and start building up. And we encourage you to do the same in your life. Celebrate the good, not only in yourself, but in those around you. Promote what you love instead of bashing what you hate and see what a difference it'll make in your own life. Well, did you hear about this? It was one of the most stunning headlines in a long time, and most of the media flat out missed it. Julia Hawkins became the oldest female in history to compete in a track and field event at 105 years old. Growing Boulder didn't miss it. In fact, Growing Boulder was there. Our video of her race has millions of views, but that's just a small part of who this woman really is. Mark Middleton himself visited Louisiana where she lives and made her record-breaking run, and he brought back the kind of insight well, you just won't find anywhere else. The buzz is building at the track and field finals in the Louisiana State Senior Games. Word is spreading that Julia Hawkins has just arrived and will be running the 100 meters. Do you know where registration is? Uh, it's right here. 105 year old. Is that that lady? Lady, oh, yeah. She's from Baton Rouge. She's, from, oh. she's originally from Pontchartou. I've seen her run numerous yeah. times, yeah. yeah. She's, yeah. Here. she's here, huh? Yeah, she's here. They I've got to tell my wife. My wife's met her. She loves her. They have, uh, how are you guys doing? Good. We're doing Good great. All right. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> One of the reasons I go to these meets is to see and be inspired by the athletes that compete and hear their stories. And this is a story he'll share forever because Julia Hawkins has come to set a world record and expand the boundaries of human potential. Julia, are you all loosened up, ready to go? Yeah, I think I am. You look ready. I am ready. The crowd is ready. <laughs> I've been ready a long time. Before she runs, we walk. 24 hours earlier, Julia showed us around her garden in Baton Rouge, an official state-certified habitat with over 75 native plants, all of which she's identified and tagged. Julia is especially proud of her bonsai trees. All my best ones are in the house. But right here was the baobab, and it's next oldest to the redwoods, and it lives 2,000 years 
and it's called The Tree of Life by Disney. Every conversation with Julia quickly turns to her husband, Murray, who died in 2013 at the age of 95. The two were college sweethearts, separated by World War II. Murray was stationed at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. They had been apart for a year, and when they realized that it would be at least another year before they were together, they were married on the phone. And he wrote wonderful letters all that time, long, long letters. And I, I read those letters all again when I was just a few, after he died, just a few years ago. And that made me feel young again. That made me a wonderful feeling of being young again and living that life all over again. They were married for 70 years, raising four children. Energized by rereading Murray's love letters from decades ago, Julia took up running when she turned 100 and immediately began setting records and turning heads. She wrote her memoir at 100 and at 105 still lives alone in the house that she and Murray built together in the 1940s. I also have had so many people say, I'm, you're what I want to be when I grow up or I want, you're my example. And if I'm being left here in life for just that, that would be good enough to set an example for a lot of people if that's what I'm doing. I'd like that. I believe when you get older, you should have magic moments and passions because older people have to have something to look forward to, something to be ready for, something to care about. And I do care about a lot of things. I care about flowers and birds and sunrises and sunsets. And I've seen so many wonderful things in my life. And she's not done yet. Back on the track, she's ready for another magical moment. Jason, Miss Julia Hawkins is 4635. Oh my goodness. Where's the track? Right there. It's ready for you. Spectators have come from all over to watch her run, including her little sister, Mickey. How are you feeling? You ready? <laughs> Do you think you might be running at 105? No, no, I'm not running at 96. <laughs> Julia was a fifth grade teacher 80 years ago, and a group of her students, now in their 90s, have arrived for another lesson. We're pulling for you. You're amazing. Thank you. God bless you. She called us and she said, now you girls, I want you to wear either LSU shirts or purple shirts. <laughs> well, and you did what your teacher told you. I did what my teacher told me, so I wore purple. <laughs> Lonnie Williams, you remember me? Lonnie Williams? Yeah. Right across the river from John and Shirley. She taught my husband in the fifth grade. And he loved her till the day he died last year. He said she was the most fabulous teacher he had all through his education. She was my fifth grade Girl Scout leader. I was not fortunate to be in her fifth grade class. She is just a one-of-a-kind person. We, we all have different hobbies and collect things, and we say she collects people. And that is honestly everywhere she goes. She wants to meet the people, meet the strangers, get to know them, tell them her story. And it's 
and she does keep up with hundreds and hundreds of people across the country. That's a remarkable ability to, to interact with other people in such a loving, outgoing way. Louisiana's lieutenant governor arrives with a proclamation honoring Julia for her inspiration, and even he wants a selfie. It's something to get used to, to have your mom being a, a media star <laughs> everywhere she goes. Younger women especially admire her grit and determination. Thank you. Good luck today. You go, girl. Break a leg. <laughs> Actually, with gusting winds, that is a real concern. Her biggest concern is falling. And uh, with her eyesight so poor, it would be pretty easy to trip and, uh, and fall. So I think that's what scares her. You know, keeping your balance is hard when you're 105. Just standing still is hard. But Julia didn't come to stand still. She's here to become the oldest woman to ever compete in a sanctioned track and field event. She's ready to run, and so are those who've come to witness history. Yay! Come on, let's get this show on the road! On your marks... Set. All right, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Unable to see more than two feet in front of her, but inspired by the cheering crowd, Julia isn't just running. She's adding another magical moment to her collection. It took her 105 years to get here, to this moment, and just over 62 seconds to get the job done. The wind was bad, it was cold, and all those things, but I still wanted to do it. And I had a lot of friends going to be here today, students I taught, from three different classes are, are here today. And I wanted them to feel that their teacher did well. Some of these people have come from a long way. And uh, I appreciate her making the effort to come. And I want to, I like to please people. And this is one way to do it. When you get to be 105, you know you have fewer tomorrows than yesterdays. Does that weigh heavily on your mind? No, not a bit. I'm ready to go. I want to go to my husband, where he's out there somewhere. But until that day, she'll keep collecting magic moments and personifying the song a neighbor sang to her on her 105th birthday. Frank Sinatra sang it. And if you should survive to 105, think of all you're derived out of being alive. And here is the best part. You have a head start if you are among the very young at heart. Up next, it takes a lot to truly be fulfilled in life. And what would you say is the most important thing? Love, money, health, or is it something else altogether? Find out in just a minute. This is Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. 
You know, people always talk about the power of purpose, about its importance to us as we age, and everybody agrees we have got to have a reason for being, a reason to get up in the morning. And nobody knows more about purpose than Richard Leiter. He's a pioneer in the global purpose movement. He did a PBS special on it. He's written like a dozen books about it. And when Mark asked him about it, he explained that he believes there are several aspects of purpose that are most important to make it work. Richard, you talk about purpose being a verb. Uh, Explain that. Why does purpose need action? Well, purpose is always beyond yourself. And uh, there are three stages to purpose. First is it's about you. It's about your gifts, your passions, your values. Then it's about us. Hopefully you mature at certain points in life. And it's not just about you. We call that self-absorption or being a narcissist if it continues throughout life to be just about you. But at some point, hopefully earlier, it's about connection with others and and making a difference in the lives of, of, of others. And ultimately, it's about all of us. People who are really purposeful see that they can bring purpose to life all day, every day. And uh, 24-7, you know, there's big P purpose and there's little P purpose. And little P purpose is about bringing action to the, to the world. And so uh, a verb means it's about action. It's about that one small thing to make a difference in the lives of others. And out of that comes vitality and really a, a, a sense of fulfillment. And there's a big distinction there between happiness and fulfillment. Happiness is on the outside. It's something that we can buy. It's something we can experience in certain ways, which is great. But fulfillment comes to connect with others and to somehow feel like we are uh, making a difference in the lives of others. That is long-term fulfillment. Richard Leiter with some great advice there on how to unlock our purpose in life. Lots to think about there. Mark, great job with the interview. And I'm sure that kind of started your wheels turning, too, because now it's time for the segment we call On My Mind with Mark. You know, Bill, it's a good point. Purpose keeps us alive, but uh, it takes energy to, to to pursue a purpose, especially as we get older. And, and what's on my mind today, and thank you for asking, is is something you know all about. We are launching, folks, a brand new podcast. It's called Fountain of Youth because it's all about masters and senior sports, and it's really not about being an athlete because we're going to share the stories of ordinary people and how regular exercise And the social benefits of being on a team, working out with others, can have amazing results. And, of course, Bill, we've talked about this before. There really is no fountain of youth, and there never will be. Uh, There's never going to be a pill. There's never going to be any sort of genetic intervention. There's never going to be medicine that will be a fountain of youth. The closest thing, and it's been proven time and time again, is vigorous physical exercise and social interaction. In fact, Bill, I'm fascinated by the fact that many researchers are now saying that aging actually starts in the muscles. And you guys have seen the statistics between the ages of 50 and 70. We all lose about 15% of our lean muscle mass. And after that, it jumps to 30% per decade. And as we lose muscle, We gain fat, and since fat cells don't burn as many calories uh, as muscle cells, our metabolism then slows down. 
We have more sugar in our blood. That makes us vulnerable to all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, We lose support uh, of our bones and our joints, uh, makes falls and breaks more common. You know, it's just this slippery slope that most older people begin to slide down and then fall, and it all starts with losing muscle. And the cool thing that we're learning from all of these Masters athletes is we don't have to. We can continue to exercise and gain muscle mass into our 90s and, as Julia Hawkins showed us, into our 100s. And I love what you said, Mark. It's not about necessarily being an athlete. Exercise is anything more than you're doing now. And if you engage yourself and it's fun and exciting, you'll increase those benefits, right? That's how it works. Amen. So I invite you all to go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Fountain of Youth and subscribe because I promise you, you're going to like it. Great thought to end on. We'll see you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Green.